Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another Chicana Code Switchers episode. My name is Ariana, and I am one of your co-hosts. Hi. Hi, everyone. I'm Patricia. I am the second co-host of Chicana Code Switchers. And today we are excited to have what? It's the second day of February. Um, Valentine's Day is coming up. We have 29 days, right? At this point, 27. And I also... Um, yeah. And I also can't believe it's February already. It felt like there was like two months in January. I know on social media, we always say we're ready for 2020. But I don't know, every single month, it's just a struggle bus. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Um, but Patti, can you share about what you've done in, the, in this past month? How, what are go What's going on with you? So for me, since our last episode, I've been really trying to commit to not overextending myself. So, so far, so good. I've actually had to turn on a couple of projects and just make sure that, you know, I, what can I realistically do each day? And then the next day I'm like, you know what, it's tomorrow's problem. And so um, part of it is like keeping up with my passion planner. So this time around uh, my club got uh, free passion planners for our club. So um, we, it's just so much better, the structure, just because of the amount of productivity I do have to finish for this my last semester of my master's program and just trying to make sure that I drink enough water I'm sleeping on time enough hours and eating on time is also very important so I've been able to just schedule in my my meal times my exercising um, I started my first swim class because I told myself by 2021 I'll learn how to swim I do not know how to swim <laughs> so it's it's, it's a, a little like it's a process and it's also yeah. something that I was very like, um, como se dice, like, me tenía vergüenza de like not knowing how to yeah. swim. It's just, yeah. it's just a thing. And so, and I've also invested on skincare products and routine. Um, later on, I'll tell you all about some really cool um, women of color that I follow of skincare products and just learning about your routine. Mm -hmm. There's a nighttime and a daytime one. Um Girl. I know it's it's a lot but but, it, but I've researched enough to know like okay now I know what I did wrong before um mm. and also at work I block off 30 minutes each time I have a work block so I have enough time to walk around refill my water bottle finish some reports notes and just get a breather because it, it's just too much having back-to-back -back meetings like I did last last semester And it's made a huge difference because now um, when I'm in my appointments, I'm actually more present with my students and I'm able to experience a, a lot of not just breakthroughs for myself of like knowing my own advising style has changed um, because now as I'm meeting with students on probation and uh, new transfers, I am meeting with them because my own physical mental psychological needs are being met like I'm able to be present and also not project my tiredness not project mm -hmm. my impatientness you know not project other things and so I find it it's so much easier to be personable and also to to meet the student where they're at and find out and give them more grace 
and letting them like make mistakes, you know, because that's pretty tough when you, all of us mm -hmm. are, are stressed and pulled thin. And I've been mm -hmm. actually giving each of them passion planner free printables, a school to do list. And mm -hmm. it breaks down each class, you know, like just the format in general has helped students understand like the responsibilities and know how to communicate with faculty. So that's mm. a big reason why I find a lot of students don't get good grades. It's because they don't know how to um, understand the syllabus expectations and that each professor is very different. I mean, there's a lot of things going on <clears throat> in each classes um, and in, in their own lives. Um, but mm -hmm. also like a lot of them don't know that they can ask for extensions, that mm -hmm. they can ask for uh, more time. Um, they can go to office hours to get feedback. Like those mm -hmm. are things that they have never been socialized to do and understand that they don't have to try to make it work. I'm like, you're sinking and swimming at the same time. Allow yourself some, some time to just adjust to the change. So some really cool things at work. And so yeah. how are you doing, Ariana? Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's January feels like it's been two months too long. <laughs> um, I have, um, I mean, it's, it's been like running because ever since um, I went to Puerto Rico for, you know, that San Sebastián, Las Calles de San Sebastián, la, Las Fiestas, um, feel like I'm just trying to catch up with work, catch up with the emails that I feel like I send one back. I mean, I respond to the emails and I get five back. So it's constantly trying to keep up with that demand and also um, trying to have that work-life balance, trying to go to events, mm -hmm. trying to meet up with cool people like who ground me. I also had one of my friends visiting me last week. Um, and that was really refreshing to reconnect with her and, and show her around, uh, where I live and, um, show her the campus. And, um, so I feel like it's been busy. Um, but also I'm excited for what's to come like new beginnings. Um, uh, each day is a new beginning mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, I, I can't wait to, um, hear back from doctoral programs I still haven't heard back mm -hmm. um but then again I feel like I'm I'm kind of becoming my my students who are also waiting to hear back from graduate school programs and they're like is this normal <laughs> to wait this long and I'm like yeah I'm all reassuring them but I'm also wondering the same yeah. thing um so yeah um yeah uh continuing to build those networks right continue to maintain the relationships that I have and um seeing what what opportunities are out there for sure just like being very in uh intentional about how, uh where where i would like to go next and how much time like i think recently i've been getting this question a lot about how much time i want to be in boston and i say that i don't have like a time limit and i'm open to the opportunities um but i don't know I'm I'm open to see where I will be led next and what's going to happen. Like it's it's all up in the air, which is exciting yet nerve mm -hmm. nerve wracking. 
So now it's my honor to introduce our next guest speaker. Her name is Mara Noemi Lopez Godoy. She uses pronouns she, her, hers, and she is a researcher and faculty associate at Arizona State University. Mara is a wife and mother of two young children. Her daughter is five and her son is two. Her academic journey was not easy, fast or linear. It took her nearly 12 years to complete her undergraduate degree in psychology. And when she did, her daughter was six months old. She played volleyball, basketball, and softball for two years of college. And then she went on to bounce between multiple junior colleges and universities in San Diego to finally finish at SDSU. She went on to complete her master's from Point Loma Nazareth University, and when she graduated, her son was six months old. Now she's in the Doctor of Education program at Arizona State University. Her husband is also an MFA student at ASU. She works in the Teachers College as a research coordinator, teaches an ed psych course on motivation in the Teachers College, and also teaches in the Major and Career Exploration Department. She has worked in higher education for over 10 years in various capacities. She started working at SDSU in research and then moved into administrative roles that gave her the opportunity to work for and advocate for undergraduate and master's level students. Those experiences working with students have helped inspire her work she does now and the passion she has for helping students succeed. She's busy juggling being a mama, wife, working and being a student, but learning to balance. In 2012, she completed her yoga teacher training, and with all of life's happenings, she stopped practicing. Recently, she started to reacquaint herself with her practice in an effort to invest her physical and mental health. Welcome. Hi, Hi. thanks for having me. What a, what a, an extensive... <laughs> you know it's funny my husband says you have five monkeys in your brain and they're all playing different songs and somehow they're all in tune so <laughs> um um welcome Maya. how um uh, would you can you share with with our audience how we got connected so we got connected through the famous and amazing doctora lorena marquez of doctora hood lorena rising of the, the famous and now um, countrywide Dinner Con Doctoras. I saw, you know, I, I've been in Arizona now for about a year and a half. My family moved here from San Diego in 2018. When we moved here, we jumped right into our responsibilities at ASU as students and me as an employee there. And um, I just felt like I was really interested in finding a sisterhood, having left so many of my sisters in San Diego. And on Instagram, I just kept seeing this hashtag dinner con doctoras everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And I had to chase it down to the source. And the source was Lorena. You know, kind of the cool thing about social media is that you can just kind of reach out to someone you have, you, you don't know at all. And it's kind of a shot in the dark as to whether or not they're going to be cool or not. <laughs> Lorena has been a sister from the jump nervous I reached out to her I asked her how to just do this like can I can I host a dinner here in Arizona I'd been here like not not that long <laughs> um and and I did and she helped me in that process and I've just been picking her brain ever since so um I I connected with Lorena and then not too long afterwards she was uh, a guest on your podcast and then that's why I got connected with you guys you ladies <laughs> 
Yeah, that's right. Which, uh, which is interesting because uh, when we started connecting, you were talking to us about, I mean, if we refer, if all our listeners uh, who've been following us for a while, if they refer back to season two, episode three, um, Dr. Lorena actually refers you uh, in mm-hmm. that episode and talks about this platform that you were starting to create. So um, this platform is Academic Mujeres. So could you mm-hmm. tell us what is Academic Mujeres and what sparked uh, what, what sparked for you to even create this platform? So yeah, um, when I was when Lorena was on your your podcast, it was just a thought, right? I had been to this dinner con doctoras. I hosted it and we had such a great turnout. There was like 30 something plus women there. Some of them didn't, most of us didn't know each other. I knew nobody, that for sure. I knew nobody. Um, but as I walked around the room and we had like a, a, a room in, in the back of the restaurant that was like isolated, it was already decorated with like sarapes everywhere. It was a vibe. <laughs> and, um, and I would hear, you know, uh, women who had already received their doctorate recently or years well, like, I wish I would have had a sisterhood like this when I was in my program, or I wish I would have seen more representation when I was in my program. And even some of the women that were um, pursuing their degrees now are like, I have no one in my program that looks like me, that talks like me, has had that we can share experiences with. And it was like, I, I got home that night and I'm like, it's, I just, it was in me. It was in me. Those voices were in me and I, because I could relate to all of them. And I thought, well, if I can host a dinner con doctoras and hear all these things, but I don't do anything afterwards. I just felt like the burden was on my shoulders to move beyond this. I, and I connected with Lorena. She said she had the same feeling, but she's been working with doctora hood for a while. And the dinner con doctoras has taken on a life of its own now. Right. And it's been impacting women mujeres in academia across the country for way over a year now. So I wanted to start Academic Mujeres as a platform for women in higher education uh, or mujeres that were in academia pursuing their undergraduate, master's level and uh, doctoral level degree plenary in all different fields to provide for them resources, information, funding opportunities, but also so that they can see themselves in different fields. They can see how become as a, as a group in achieving these degrees and being successful in various different capacities in academia it, and, and through the social media platform, hopefully uh, increasing representation, even though in your university, you might not see it, you know, it's there, you know, it's everywhere, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And yeah. part of it is, is talking about some of these challenges um, because and a lot of these dinners, we're talking, there's like these dialogues about these challenges that we're all experiencing in different steps of the way within our pipeline or mm-hmm. within our experience um, in higher education. So uh, could you speak on like, when did you decide to pursue a doctor degree? Um, knowing your story, um, mm-hmm. how, did that, how did that come to be? Oh, girl, I, I was not a student in the traditional sense. Like I was just... I was there, you know, I had to do my degree. I was a, I was a student athlete. I got, I was in AP classes. I've been in gifted pro. I was, you know, I did the thing that I was supposed to do, but my motivating factor was my, was athletics. I've been a, a 
sort of a jock, you know, I put air quotes in that for since I was nine. I have three brothers, all of them played uh, ball. My brother played professional basketball for La Liga Nacional de Baloncesto. That was my motivating factor. After my two years of junior college eligibility were up, I had nothing that motivated me anymore. And I was that student that, um, Patricia, you were referring to that doesn't speak to their faculty member or go to uh, career services. I just wasn't that person. But I replaced that space that I had with a job, with another job, with sometimes another job, as you can see now. I'm, I, I don't know how to sit still, obviously. But I had multiple jobs and just didn't have time to hang out on campus to seek out these other resources. I also didn't value it. I didn't know it was important. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have someone that was like, why are you just aimlessly taking a class here or there, you know? And because I was paying for a lot of my classes out of pocket, I ended up go retreating or going back to the, the junior college level if I was able to take a class that transferred and would fulfill the requirement because that's all I could afford. Um, at the time. And, and um, when I started working in research in late or early 2008, I believe, yeah, 2008, um, there was a PI there that was like, Mara, you have to finish. Like, let's, how, what do I have to do to support you? How can we get this done? And I'm like, why do you care? You know, he's like, because I see you, I see your, your, your potential. And it was the first time that anyone felt like, I felt like I had a mentor at that time. And I felt supported in that, you know, I didn't feel like I was just pursuing this, this thing for no reason and without an objective. And he sat me down, we talked about it and we went through there. So he became my mentor. I finally finished and I, I did research. He was the PI on various different research studies where I worked at the San Diego State University Research Foundation. His name is Dr. John Elder. He's amazing. And, um, you know, from there, I was like, okay, I finished my bachelor's degree. And then I was like, okay, well, now what? But I'd been a student since I was five years old. It got stuck to me. <laughs> so I was applying for a job at Point Loma Nazarene University. And while I was there interviewing for that position, I was looking at their master's program. And I was like, I'm going to apply and see what happens. And the rest is history. I got in, finished. I walked across the stage to embrace my six-month-old baby and my toddler. It was a challenge, and we did it. And now I'm here because after uh, finishing my master's program, I just um, I felt inspired to try to affect change, to be a part of the change. And um, I felt that one way I could do that is by um, earning my doctoral degree. And what was, uh, what did you receive your degrees in for each one? So I got my, I got my master, my psychology, my bachelor's degree in psychology. I got my master's degree in organizational leadership and I'm pursuing the doctorate of education in leadership and innovation. So I've definitely been more inclined, um, to pursue something with revolved that revolved around the, the leadership, um, or industrial organizational psychology. What would have made your doctoral journey a better experience? Um, well, I'm, I'm about two years away from it ending. I, I think that, you know, it is, I, I had an instructor last semester that was teaching us um, 
about critical race theory. Uh, Patricia, we've talked about this briefly, but, you know, it was, um, she couldn't relate to the actual experience, the actual lived experience of, you know, these societal issues that were, that we were discussing. And I think that the representation in uh, my program is, is not really high. It's not a very diverse program. My doctoral journey might be made better by um, having a more diverse faculty, but I know that that's a, an issue across the country. So while I do think that it could be made better, I want to be a part of that that improvement, you know. And uh, that's that's uh, important, and also. It's it's interesting to see like when when we're talking about um, joining or, or pursuing a doctorate degree or just in general graduate degree. Um, what's interesting because I'm in a in a master's program in education and a lot of these conversations about who can or who can't go. Um, this whole uh, conversation about you know is college for everyone or mm -hmm. um, people who say that not everyone can and should get a graduate or college degree and oftentimes it's you know included with a comment that is like well we need plumbers you know I don't know why plumbers is such a big comment or why we <laughs> refer to plumbers as a thing mm -hmm. um, they get paid a lot of money girl <laughs> yeah but but the problem is like especially with vocational professionals or who end mm -hmm. up receiving a, a vocational degree when we talk about, well, we need polymers, I'm like, realistically speaking, a lot of our low income uh, students or households, and that's a lot of us across the country, can't afford a plumber, you know, or mm -hmm. oftentimes, either you learn plumbing, because you have to do it as a survival, but not many are plumbers in general. And if they do, it's just one institution, you know, hiring one or two within the mm -hmm. whole system. So thinking about you know, the inequities in terms of this conversation, what are your thoughts on that? Um, my, the inequities in... And by people saying, people like, who should or shouldn't be in college or graduate school? I mean, I don't think anybody needs to be telling anybody anything to do whatever, you know? <laughs> I, I have heard a lot that um, we put too much weight on education, right? Like these vocational professions should be advocated for equally. And um, I think that that's true. I don't think that the college experience is is 100% beneficial to everybody in the same way. I don't think that that's true. I was an undergraduate student that was uh, working aimlessly. No one, I, I felt like I could talk to someone and there was no follow-up. I could say, this is my issue. And there was no care. There was no empathy. There was no compassion. There was no guidance. If not for my one mentor, and of course the support of my family and my, my husband that I've been with for 14 years and my mom, um, if not for that mentor, I, I don't know if I would have gone back. It wasn't serving me. You know, I wasn't having, I didn't have that college experience. I didn't find it to be a, a positive one, but I was very fortunate to have come out the other side with a mentor. So I, but I think that having, having experienced the hardship that I, I did or the, the challenges that I did in undergrad and having to be where I am now, the college experience as defined by my life has been beneficial to me. I have learned so much 
And that includes a lot of life experience. I've, I've, I've learned how to be resilient. I've learned how to be resourceful. I've learned a lot of things outside of the classroom as, as, a, as a part of being a, a college student. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, even myself reflecting, just getting into the master's, like research and higher ed had definitely drastically changed my life outcome compared mm-hmm. to what would have happened if I would have followed my parents' footsteps and maybe just, because they didn't even graduate from high school, both of them. Yeah. So like just finishing high school and it's like, oh, that's it, you know, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of people don't realize and they come with this deficit mindset that not everyone should do. And I'm like, but we never give them the opportunity to make that choice. You know, that mm-hmm. choice is being pushed on to people or people are being pushed out to specific things and being told, well, you know, people like you don't do this and that, you know, like that's the attitude Mm -hmm. as opposed to just saying like, well, this is an option. You'd make that choice. You have the autonomy to decide if this is for you or not, but you also Mm -hmm. get guidance and support, which is unfortunate because in terms of research projects, how you're mentioning people are, you know, exposing us to like things like critical race theory or something like that, Mm -hmm. but they don't actually have that lived experience, that research experience, because Ariana and I have actually um, been talking about this before recording and it's and it's the frustrating part especially meeting with students where I'm like you are living in the flesh this thing that we've been theorizing for years Mm -hmm. but somehow can't come up with a solution Mm -mm. yeah it's it's a it's a problem man but you you can't make a change if you if you do nothing Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that um, I feel like we should advocate for more um, s- students to go in- to pursue higher education. That is my goal. It's a part of my journey. Um, it's not just throw you in the college and then, OK, we've succeeded. It's it's a it's a full forced support process. OK, you're in college. Well, how are you doing while you're there? How can I support you? You know, it's the follow up. That was what I was missing. And that's where I struggled Um, because a lot of times you feel like you are sort of thrown out into the deep end, especially for first generation students who um, maybe move out of their parents' house, go across the country and are in a primarily white institution or something like that and are so unfamiliar. Yeah, they got there. And then so then what? You know, where's the support network? Where's the where's the guidance there? And so I think that it is a multi dimensional thought and process, to be honest. And it's for us as educational leaders to try to believe in our system better. You know, like personally, I think that even I mean, Ariana and I have been talking about like just the process of going to higher ed. It's very white, uh, it's very white centric. And even in terms of the pedagogy and like the way that people are taught or engaged in academia, but I could Mm -hmm. think that if it was transformed and changed in the way that we use higher ed or, you know, the way that people experience higher ed, I think it'd be very transformational. It's just unfortunate that- When, when, when it changes, not if, when, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally right. And the fact that um, we are not using more intrusive advising, we're not using holistic advising, like, um, and and that's why I'm saying like the way that I'm working and the way that I'm even changing the way I'm working, I'm allowing space for me to actually call every student 
and be like, I haven't mm-hmm. seen you. Where can mm-hmm. I help you? Can I answer mm-hmm. some questions? And nine out of 10, a lot of more students are willing to actually go see you in your office if you just give them mm-hmm. that call. Mm-hmm. Because they're making all these decisions by themselves without realizing that there's probably a better way or a way with more support. Patricia, do you want to talk about the next Yes, so we're switching (laughs) over to our other topic about gatekeepers and challenges and being taken seriously. Um, In our previous post on Instagram, um, we've shared this post. It was a Twitter post by uh, Trinisadian. Uh, November 15, 2019, um, and the, the quote was, why do so many educated people like basic empathy? And there was a retweet by Totes Not Sophie, uh, who mentioned higher education is a form of classism. If you're not careful, you end up looking down on the people you swore you were going to help. So mm. let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I- I, I agree with totes, not Sophie. Um, <laughs> I, I agree that that is, that has happened, that is possible and it is currently happening and it's a problem. I agree. Um, and it's sort of scary, right? Cause um, you see people that look like you that might've come from where you came from and they're looking at you like they don't know what you are. You're an anomaly to them. You're different. You're like, no, dude, we're the same. I remember, uh, oh, I was going to say a bad word, but can I say a bad word? <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> um, I was, I was in a, a room of program managers that in, when I was in my old job as a researcher and there were these PIs that were talking to each other, this, you know, two Latinos, and, and they were going back and forth. And one of the, the PIs was a little, little, what I would say, quote unquote, uppity, right? He's from the, uh, that side of the town. He has that house and that car. He's that person. And the other one has everything, essentially, that this PI has. He's got multi-million dollar research studies. Uh, but he's the homie, you know? And he told the PI, he says, we all shit in a toilet and we all bleed red blood. Like, stop. And I thought it, it kind of brought him down a notch, right? The, the opposite one. And I was like, why is this even something that needs to be said out loud? So I have the mentality that we all shit in a toilet and we all bleed red blood. But I also have a very strong-willed grandmother that won't let you get too big for your britches. You know, she worked in the fields. My mom worked in the fields until she was 19 years old. We're from a small town in the Imperial Valley, Imperial Valley, California. And um, I was born in Mexicali, raised in the valley. And um, we, it was an irrigation town. So there's a lot of crops everywhere. And that's what I was raised on. I was raised on to be a hard worker and never forget where you came from, you know? And, um, we moved from a very poor neighborhood with with very little resources and, and very little money, and we started to come up a little bit. And my mom was still like, "We're we're good, you know. We lived a modest life." And um, so, yeah, I think it's a problem in higher education. Higher, I think that higher ed is a form of classism. There's the 
tenured faculty, associate faculty, assistant faculty, uh, this faculty, uh, mm -hmm. faculty associate that you can kind of do what we have to do, but you do it and get paid very less and have no benefits for it. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there's our, there's classes in, in higher, higher education. Um, but what I love to see and what I have been seeing and hearing is that we're breaking through some of those barriers. Um, unfortunately, this becomes another form of that, right? This elitist mentality that we start to invest in ourselves as a people, which is wrong. Yeah, that, that, um, I, that brings me or reminds me of a conversation that I had with my, one of my former advisors where, when I was looking at research, uh, uh, graduate school programs, doctoral programs, I said, but I'm looking for, I can't find POC faculty mm -hmm. in these programs mm -hmm. that I want to work with. Mm -hmm. um, and he reminded me, he's like, just because they're brown doesn't mean they're down. And I was like, hey. They say skin folk <laughs> ain't your kin folk. Someone told me that a long time ago. I was like, girl. Audrey Lord, Audrey Lord with the with the teaching. Yeah, <laughs> and it really was true because um, I was looking for that that diversity, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I was telling Patricia, isn't it like point zero two percent of Latinos who pursue or graduate with doctoral degrees? And I'm thinking of those what of those Latinos who end up becoming faculty. Uh, how many of them are actually? you know, either repeating the wheel or helping other Latino students, Latina students to um, become successful mm -hmm. graduate students, right? Like how, how many are like replicating the wheel and how many are actually like echándole la mano? Like Some would them. argue, and I, and I read an article about this, but it was a while ago, so I can't quote it verbatim at all. And I don't know who the, the uh, author was, but someone... Um, wrote about this and they called it assimilation they are assimilating to their environment they are becoming a pro they're they become a product of their environment right mm -hmm. and that's problematic too because like how do you get ahead of that how do you build awareness for that um but and and while it might take some time i think that it, by increasing representation that problem becomes starts to lessen, right? Because we become a part of the mass uh, that is graduating with higher degrees, that is infiltrating the faculty system, you know. Um, but it takes it takes a while, you know. And, and it, it should not. Yeah, go ahead. I, and I, I was I was going to say was it shouldn't deter us from continuing to move forward. Right. Yeah. And it also takes a bit of um, reflection from all of us. I think a lot of it is uh, we're trying to supposedly get ahead. Supposedly, we want to help. You know, we have all these missions of we should have more Latinxes with doctoral degrees. But when you actually have that Latinx student right across from you who are saying, I want to pursue a doctoral degree, a graduate degree or finish my undergrad, like, how do we respond to that? Do we eventually just look at all of the things that they have against them? And we're like, oh, you're too much work, you know, because that's mm -hmm. a lot of the attitude is like, oh, pues tú no la vas a hacer, you know, like, and, and mm -hmm. it's just like, 
well, if they had had everything, all the huge support, I mean, just working with um, the students I work with, I'm just like, if we had that same energy in higher ed, how we do with, you know, the presidential, you know, the people who are getting the presidential scholarships, the full rides, the, you know, like if, if we had that same kind of energy to these students who actually are needed the most, I think we would have better results. Um, and we, mm -hmm. we start thinking about them as like, that is the kind of support that we need to match in order to, for them to even think that that is possible. Right, I agree. And unfortunately, yeah. um, we have a lot of people gatekeeping and saying, well, I don't want that Latinx student. You know, like we got mm -hmm. a lot of tias out here, kind of like what Sandra Cisneros <laughs> is doing where Ooh. she's like, you know what? Um, See, you know, if you're if you're that like Bocona, if you're that person who's challenging these people in these old paradigms, like that's where you get a lot of, you know, backlash with these students. Mm -hmm. I think it's really fascinating. When I was doing, um, when I was a senator for student government in the CC system, it was really interesting to see like student government across the 23 campuses say, we need more people active in student government. And then when they had the student activists, they're like, but not that. And then they yeah. would push them out. And I'm like, didn't you want participation? And then when we tell you where the issue is, you dismiss us, you know, then, yeah. then do you really want us here then in that point? Yeah. I think that also is a problem in our society is no one likes them. No one likes a quote unquote loud mouth. You know, no one likes people who rock the boat. We mm -hmm. just like to live a comfy, cushy life. That's, that makes, that's comforting. That's like a warm blanket on you, you know? Someone who rips that blanket off and was like, do you know where this blanket was made? You know, <laughs> it's like, no one likes that person. They, it's a, it's a mm -hmm. tough pill to swallow, right? To, to be that person. And it takes a strong person in mind and person and, and, and in morality to say, to stand up and be like, I'm not okay with this. That's not, that's not the way this, this is going to go, right? Um, and yeah, that person's not going to be a most valuable personality, maybe. <laughs> um, or not the most encouraged to, or, or be invited to the spaces that supposedly is like the highest elite spaces. And, and I think that's really interesting because I'm like, um, but that isn't that the whole point of research, you know, like, or. Because at the end, we're just regurgitating the same research projects with the same outcomes and not me move forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sad when you put it that way. <laughs> it is because I keep seeing these research projects. It's like, can we just move on from this? Like, we understand that there's not mm -hmm. enough of us. But I would, mm -hmm. if someone's out there thinking about a research project, a research project that would be interesting is like, how many, you know, people are being, you know, pushed out from that because they just can't, you know, they're, they're not the moldable, you know, researcher, you know, the moldable minion, mm -hmm. you know, who just regurgitates the same thing, like, which is part of why I'm like, kind of, you know, hesitant from like, even pursuing a doctorate degree yet, because I'm like, I'm just too different, you know, from what mm -hmm. you want me to do. And I just, I need some time to take a space from being a student and have different, you know, a space for other things. Because when I started my whole reparenting, evaluating my inner child traumas, I realized a lot is the projections 
that you, we or the reactions and the defensive defensiveness that we have when students actually confront you and you know call you on your bullshit mm-hmm. I mean that's also another you know strong part of being adult it's like okay you know this the student this individual is telling me this and it's actually hitting some big deep truths mm-hmm. how am I supposed to react you know mm-hmm. and and the well, how- older I get the more I'm accepting like you know what I do want that from student you know mm-hmm. I want that pushback I want people them to teach me how to grow better mm-hmm. it's just not fostered as a good thing but to by whom though who who is setting the parameters of good to you you know you yeah. said I you you said I'm too different and for mm-hmm. that reason I might not apply to a PhD program no right I, away might, yeah right away right <laughs> yeah right what I would like to say is find a program that fits you. Mm-hmm. It's out there, you know, and, and if you got to be a little flexible on your statement of purpose, just to get in, like, you know, mm-hmm. um, but you seem to me to be the right kind of different and the most necessary kind of different, you know, I would say. Yeah. Which is, it's the one thing like, right, like, this is the kind of changes or the conversation or the personality that we need in these spaces. But it's also like, where's also that support for people like us? Um, Because there's only so much that we can take um, in terms of the pushback. Yeah, Um, I agree. It's a a heavy emotional burden and it's additional labor for us to exist in a space that wasn't created for us. Mm -hmm. Right. It's really it's hard. And especially this makes makes me reflect, um, especially difficult when as first generation students take away like you know just being first gen (laughs) and you're trying to maneuver this space right and you are trying to do everything right you're trying to fulfill the requirements do all the steps that you need to do to to be considered a strong candidate for a doctoral program for example but then the first like the further you investigate then you realize or you hear from those who are in that world that it it comes down to politics right like it comes like really it really has nothing to do with your application it has to do with like who knows you who wants you there who's in the admissions committee and who's writing your letters of rec and do those people know them Mm -hmm. or do they have some sort of like uh, connection to them Mm -hmm. who's who's willing to advocate for you right you know, like it's, it goes beyond just the, the application. The application itself is already like very um, rigorous, very time consuming, et cetera. You're like polishing your essays and everything. But like when it really comes down to it, it's like maybe it's uh, that faculty is on sabbatical, that faculty is not taking any students, that yeah. faculty already has someone in mind and it's only taking one student. Yeah, You know, it just, like, there's a lot of things that are out of, you know, prospective students' control. Yeah. You know? And, and that's hard to to either grasp with, understand. Like, when you get that denial, like, we often think it's us. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. something we, we said or didn't say in our statements of purpose, maybe you know, something wasn't clear. Or yeah. even like um, us, but that was... or even like in the website, you know, like you're, when you're trying to find the right program, 
when I was mm-hmm. trying to find the right program, it's like they catfish you. <laughs> you know, like they say yeah. the right thing. <laughs> and they're like, oh, it's the right fit. You know, this person on paper is amazing. Look at their work. Look yeah. at these, you know, you try to do a thing, but you get catfished sometimes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was, yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And then they come at you with some weird you know they it, it and it ends up that you know their assistants were the ones writing that and they just plaster their name in it and so it's so and they haven't hard. updated it in like eight years <laughs> <laughs> exactly and it's mm-hmm. and it's kind of hard because it's like si no tienes esas palancas si no tienes the people that are that's what i'm saying like the more we network and the more we hear from our colegas or what is going on then we can go in a little bit more you know armed and with with mass, with mass is say, with more way more tools to survive mm-hmm. and make it through, and to hopefully thrive. But it's when I'm when I'm talking about you know pursuing graduate programs and the gatekeeping, I'm also thinking about those students that are not, quote unquote, you know like the graduate school material part, you know that mm-hmm. don't have. I mean, just last week I taught a freshman how to use a planner and they've never used a planner before. Like those things, like, I mean, those are foundational stuff that by graduate school, I mean, if you're not using a, some sort of system, you're going to be like up on sassos, everything, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. how do, how can we make you the most successful with the less stress and the less anything um, when there's like so much hidden curriculum and especially at the doctoral level, it's just a whole other universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you say, Mara, that you've had any experiences with faculty or staff, staff being gate um, being gatekeepers of opportunities? Uh, yes, actually, um, uh, recently, I would say, I was so I was working in one department, and I won't say in case <laughs> some of my old colleagues that I do love in that department. <laughs> Are, are listening or will listen, but um, I was in a different department than I am now. Very happy in a great department with a lot of support, working with a PI that's just amazing. She's a ride or die. Um, but anyways, at a different department, I was working as a program manager and I worked 30 hours a week. I never worked on Thursdays since I'd been at that study and working on that program. So, but I knew I wanted to get some experience in teaching. So, uh, but I had no uh, like traditional teaching in the classroom experience and facilitated workshops and done these like presentations. So I worked with students, but not in the classroom. So I reached out to a director of department in the, this last summer. I was like working with her, interning with her, reading with her, talking with her. She, I, I told her that I wanted to teach. We interviewed, we went back and forth. She hired me. It was awesome. So I was going to start teaching two classes on Thursday. Remember, I don't work on Thursday for this other program. I told my boss, the director of that small program, and he was like, yeah, that sounds great. That's perfect. And I said, I need a letter of recommendation. He's like, you write it. I'll put my name on it. I said, okay, fine. I did that. These are weeks and weeks and weeks past. I said, hey, I got the job. He's like, okay, that's cool. Whatever. Didn't care. It came time for him to sign my supplemental pay form the way they work in the university. They're like, oh, well, you're going to get additional pay. Your current supervisor or your immediate supervisor needs to approve it. He's like, nah. I was like, what do you mean? I said, we, we've now, like, we're six weeks into this, like, whole, we've been talking about it. He's like, I just don't think that you can do that. I don't think that you're capable of teaching two classes. Because how oh can God. you, as a wife and a mother, 
and a student and my employee teach two classes on your day off. I was like, are you like, what? First of all, a ti que te importa? You know, I don't work for you on Thursday. You're not my, uh, you know, you know, my handler or whatever it is. And, and I said, in addition, you have been in this process and so all, you know, yeah, sure. Indifferent and one year out the other, but what hit me to the core was like, I don't think that you can do it because you're a wife, because you're a mother. And then, it, you know, it wasn't, be those are the first two things he said, not because I think that it would be too heavy a workload or, or how do you plan on doing that is I don't think you can do it. I'm not going to sign this. And I said, okay, you don't sign it. Go ahead. That's if you feel uncomfortable signing it, don't. I'll just go to the director of the school, AKA his boss. And, and ask her to sign it because when she started working at that, at, at the school where I was that department, I had met with her. I told her everything about my plans and my what I was doing moving forward. And she's a P mom as well. She's like, I'm not going to do it, but go ahead, girl. And when I told him I was going to get her to sign it, he was like, no, nos vamos a meter en problemas. I was like, yo no me voy a meter en problemas. I'm not going to get into trouble. You don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. signing it. You do what you got to do. I'm going to do what I got to do. Yeah. Two hours later, mm -hmm. this man sent this... I would be happy to provide my support for this and then sign the supplemental pay form. But only in my opinion, because I threatened to go above his head to his boss, but not because he knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would consider that to be in some instances gatekeeping because he was trying to prevent me from experiencing this new opportunity to be spiteful because he didn't, because he thought he was the, the know-it-all. He knew everything, right? And because for some reason, he thought that being a wife and a mother, I was incapable of mm -hmm. being successful in this, in this position. Um, and that was a challenging experience for me because, you, like you were saying, uh, Patricia, is that no one likes the person with a loud mouth, you know? No one likes the, the person that ruffles feathers, but it has been my experience that closed mouths don't get fed and no one's going to advocate for you the way you advocate for yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I could not allow for, albeit it was, it was nerve wracking. It was scary. People think it's just easy to speak up and it's not, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. when you're speaking up to a, a, a man with a quote unquote, big presence, tenured, right. Director. That shit's not easy. Um, and, and, um, and so, yeah, and I, and it's, and it takes like a whole like brain work uh, for you Ooh. to know how to like, not only address the situation and also for you to say the right things in order for you to get what you need to get done. Like the fact that you yeah. knew, Hey, well, I'll just go to the person up, you know, like and I'll just yeah. keep going up until I find someone out there and girl. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, you got to do what you got to do. And however it sits well with you. So in my mind, I thought, I'm going to have this conversation and I'm going to say everything in, in the way, in the office way, I would say it, not in the, the, the girl that um, used to be called La Smiley. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not the girl that grew up in that neighborhood, but <laughs> someone that has been sort of trained as a professional uh, staff. 
I thought, I'm going to say what I got to say, and I'm going to say everything without a regret, right? I'm going to be articulate. I'm going to express my point, but I'm not going to back down, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what he was anticipating, that I would be like, okay, sure, right? It wasn't until uh, much sometime after that, that I found out that there were um, three other, uh, two other female program managers that were in that position before me that had left because of him. And, um, and that's another, uh, you know, bigger issue probably for another podcast is the sort of (laughs) male dominating experience. And he, you know, like we were talking about, you know, he's Latino. He actually was born where I was born. We're sort of from the same place, but he's sort of moved beyond that. And, and the power has infected his thought process in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes I, people make gen- uh, assumptions or generalizations about, about us and what we can handle. And I'm like, that, that's not for you to decide. Mm-hmm. If I'm saying I can do it, it's because I, we've obviously already analyzed what we can what we are capable of Mm -hmm. right and it's very unfortunate to have people like that um and it reminds me of an incident when I I was trying to be a TA um and also I was working part-time and I was trying to get that teaching experience Mm -hmm. and after meeting with the individual uh the faculty member um, they email me and they're like, you know, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate. I don't think I, I decided to like offer it to someone else. And I'm like, dude, like I obviously have thought about it and how I'm going to balance my time and how I'm going to split up my days to make it work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and it was a, a female faculty and I would think that, you know, yes, I have a lot going on, but that's, it's only temporary. It's only a short period mm-hmm. of time, right? So, and for me, that's why I, I take note of that when I'm, when I was advising students, Patricia, mm-hmm. remember, it's like, it's not for me to, to make that call for you. If you think you can do it, that's great. Um, and even now in my current job where um, I'm helping students get into graduate school programs in the U.S., um, my colleague is like, it would, it would be a miracle if that student gets into MIT or gets into um, Cornell. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's not for me to decide. I'm not the admissions officer. I'm not the admissions committee. Like, if the student meets and is, like, a competitive student, why am I going to prevent him or her from applying to this mm-hmm. program? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's if they get denied, that's, you know, at least we gave it a try, but we won't know until – um, they submit their application. I'm like, and when I was looking at the, um, the, the, the admitted students and their profiles, I'm like, this student actually is right up there, Yeah, you know, and he's from Haiti and, you know, he has all these qualifications and, and it's always about, I always remember this from my, like one of my first jobs where it's like, let's get, let's, let's give it a chance and figure out the funding afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, but that's, you know, that's always something that I like to keep in mind. It's like, I'm not going to be someone's, uh, I'm not going to keep that student from mm-hmm. pursuing their goals or like from shooting high, mm-hmm. you know, like you never know. Like I myself did that too. And I got into Harvard. Mm-hmm. So. And it's the part for yeah. them to even know the process, 
you know, like it's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's huge for a lot of our students is just like knowing how the process works. And if it doesn't mm-hmm. work the first time, it's like, well, there's other times, but now you know what it takes. Um, mm-hmm. And even exactly. like, I'm pretty sure like if I were to advise myself, I would have been like, girl, you're doing too much, you know, but I had to, <laughs> I had to do too much, you know, like, cause mm-hmm. I had a lot to catch up to if I wanted to mm-hmm. be in these spaces and learn. And then exactly. part of it was like, you just never know what kind of opportunities would happen if I didn't do all of the stuff that I had done. Exactly. Exactly. I think that, um, I think it's important for a lot of us to think in, in the, in problem solving, um, better helping students problem solving to problem solve better and also try to think uh, like to be solution oriented you know um yeah and you know in my scenario it wasn't that he didn't think I was he thought I was too busy he just thought like my home responsibilities were gonna burn (laughs) you know my house is gonna burn down and (laughs) and how could I my kids would never be fed like he didn't even, it was just a very <laughs> sexist thing to say, right? Yeah. It wasn't even yeah. Yeah. Uh, critical feedback or <laughs> like, hey, man, like, how are you planning these things? Like, let's sit down. He didn't give a shit, right? Um, and it's but someone who wasn't that, even like a, a wife and a, and a mother either. You know, like, but not through that perspective. And it's like, it's not through right. that perspective, right? So it's just like, mm-hmm. okay, like, if you had, you know, if that was your your part of your identities or something like that, I, I would have been like, okay, like, but tell me why, but you know, expand on why this would be difficult as exactly. supposedly that particular identity. But if it's coming from sexism or some sort of oh, you know, bias, well, I mean, that's <laughs> irrelevant. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, especially with someone that has as many years of experience, was tenured who've been working at the university for so long, I would imagine that if there were a concern about my ability, like my technical ability to, yeah. to manage my time, it would be like, let, this is what I have done. Or let me refer you to someone that's been there and done that, you know, even if he, if he mm-hmm. didn't have, but it wasn't about that at the end of the day. That's not what it was about. Um, and that's, I think, huge problem that's also in academia. But again, mm-hmm. it's probably something for another podcast, right? <laughs> That's a whole entirely like new podcast that. episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chapter one. Um. <laughs> so transitioning into so, research, Ariana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your current research topic? Uh, well, this is actually, <laughs> I, I'm doing this podcast right in a really critical time in my process. Because I might have to uh-huh. change my topic. Let me just say oh. that is it is was very traumatic news um, that I received on Monday that I might potentially um, not be able to use the year's worth of research that I've already collected, the data I've already collected and analyzed and written the first draft of chapter one, two, and three on. Um, so I'm sort of coming out of that. What I'm starting to realize mm. now is that I have a lot of information with like methodological methodology information. I got a lot of theories. I have a lot of information and I have a lot of practice doing some um, research. Um, but my, my research topic will be, uh, it is <laughs> TBD <laughs> right now. But um, but I will stay in in the field of of career education. So it has been um, about 
10, no, eight, eight or nine years ago, I worked as a pro, no, was it? Oh my God, how old am I? It's about eight years ago that I worked as a program manager for a T32 training grant. It was a training and mentoring grant. And we brought in uh, minority students or, um, you know, traditionally like uh, disenfranchised groups into our research study, first generation students. And I had undergraduate level, master's level students, and I was training them on research methods, research ethics, but also career development, resume, like the hard skills, resume, interviewing, cover letter, but also like, how do you present yourself? How do you, you know, and, and I realized how deficient a lot of the students were in having a, a, a hard, a good, strong resume. And then um, I was like, well, who's teaching them to do that? Some students get that integrated into their curriculum, the career oriented uh, majors like engineering, marketing, business, they have even internships that are integrated into their curriculum to prepare them for positive occupational outcomes. But a lot of students that are in the liberal arts or in the social sciences, they don't have that integrated into their curriculum. So they have to be resourceful and know to go to career services or know to work a little extra and, and you know, be savvy enough to go out there. But the research shows that only about 10% of students go to career services. So it's a service mm. that exists for them to go into classrooms, for them to have fairs and for students to be in that space with them. But students have to go out of their way. Now, as an undergraduate student, I worked two, sometimes three jobs. I didn't have time to go to career services. And if I did have time, I wouldn't know what to say. You know, at the time mm. I was, um, aim, like I said, aimless and I was a little insecure. Like, how do I talk to faculty? What if I say something dumb? I don't know how to, how to really approach this issue. I don't know how important it is. But I'll tell you that I spent thousands and thousands of my own money to fulfill my undergraduate degree. And I learned how to write my resume and my cover letter on Google. Right. Oh. And so if the, the, the goal of the university is to prepare you for the workforce, is to educate you on, you know, societal issues and to make you a stronger intellectual member of society and, you know, member of the economic world how are we not preparing all of our students equally? You know, how are some students getting more uh, career or better, stronger career education than others? And so my research topic will be revolving around building career decision-making self-efficacy in um, liberal arts, Latina students, or, you know, um, disenfranchised students um, and exploring career education, social cognitive career theory. That's amazing. I mean, it's it's leading you down a different um, path, but definitely still holding the essence of what your original research want you wanted it to be. Yeah, I think right now the challenge is finding the the demographic, finding the sample population that I need, and ensuring that the my access to that demographic is consistent and long enough for me to be able to create an intervention that's sustainable. Um, but the, but I will continue to stay in the realm of career education. It, it just will look different than what I thought. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you're, you're focusing on liberal arts or like the, the ones that, you know, social science, arts and humanities, which mm -hmm. typically, I mean, the reason why I never went to career services was particularly because they, they didn't know how to work with a student like me in terms of the, cause I had um different degrees and different approach like and I'm like oh I want to do you know graduate school a lot of the people prepared to work with your resume 
don't know how to do that. Yeah. Um, and so or they're, and they're, they're graduate students themselves. You know? Yeah. Uh, for for our undergrad, they barely had a career development center, and for the most part, they didn't know how to write things like culturally competent, intrusive advising for you know underrepresented students. None mm-hmm. of that stuff. So it was like my my research mentors were the ones helping me with my resume in terms right. of that, which is unfortunate because you're just like, isn't that the whole point? <laughs> is that they're gonna right. prepare you for this? <laughs> right. And then the graduate level, the same thing, you know, like, how do you work with fields or professions that aren't very, like, easy to, you know, put together? And even Mm -hmm. the samples that they have, like, it's really interesting, the Mm -hmm. samples that they have, because career services has like, oh, here's the sample. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I I can't relate to anything that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. because it's not really jobs that I would pursue. Right. Or there's no category for me. But there's also so much that goes on before you get even to the resume point or mm-hmm. you know, arguably there's there's the decision making process. Like, how do you decide to go into this field? How do you decide to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, reach out to someone randomly and introduce yourself so that you can learn with them? Like these are all um, sort of the softer skills necessary, the stuff that kind of goes on behind the screens that that prepares you for um, you know, career acquisition. And a lot of that stuff isn't taught. Even rejection, like dealing with rejection sometimes can be mm-hmm. just so mm-hmm. defeating for some people, but it's a natural part of the process. It is the process, right? You apply for a job, you don't get that job. That's gonna happen. I've never met anyone in my life that has gotten every single job that they've applied for. Because rejection is a part of the process, but we don't talk about that often. So sometimes when you're a younger student and you, you're just like, I need this job. I need it. It's like, I, my life depends on it. I'll be so good at this job. You don't get that job. And it sends you in this tailspin of self-deprecating thoughts and the world is going to end. It's so heavy because I think we're led to believe that mm-hmm. if you want something and you have all the requirements, you should get it. That's point blank and period. And that's not always the case. So I think that we also need to teach and, and learn that it's okay to not get all of, you know, not get the, that job. There's another one around the corner or, you know, learn to be resilient and resourceful and allow it to, to feel it, be in it, and then keep going. Most definitely. Closing in, uh, one of our last questions what resources would you recommend for students who are beginning to either start their research project, graduate school, college, their professional life in general? Um, any last bit of advice that you would recommend? Okay, I am the person has an app for that. Okay, <laughs> that is me. I am the app. I am the app for that. Um, two apps that I would recommend. Well, three apps actually. Google Docs is life. I have Google Docs on everything, on my iPad, on my on my Mac, on my phone. If um, I need to share the document, upload an assignment, edit. If I have a thought that I'm like, oh, I should add that to my paper or I should put a little footnote here to, to go back to that later. Google Docs is easily accessible. So I use Google Docs all the time and then we'll submit, you know, Word, print, whatever. So Google Docs is everything. Grammarly, have you used Grammarly? I know that sounds super yeah. basic, but it has <laughs> in a lot of a lot of ways, and I don't think a lot of people know about it. Um, and Zotero, I use Zotero for my references. I have it on my toolbar here. Uh, it helps with 
finding themes, finding codes. Um, it really helped when I was writing my, my literature review. The many literature reviews that I've written, I've been able to pull from them from Zotero. So those are the three things that me, that app for that, um, likes to recommend to everybody. And then on a, on a personal level, um, one thing that has helped me when I didn't have a mentor or when I didn't have someone that I, you know, could relate to in person um, or knew of or had been someone else is just by being resourceful and, and reaching out. So it's always, it's, you know, you're the person that can sell yourself the best, right? You got to be your own hustler, your own promotional, you, you got to be your own MC. That's how I, <laughs> and I don't always get a response and, and, a, and a lack of a response is fine for me. It starts to just kind of wash off. You know, I've always thought this sounds bad for the faculty, but I've always thought one email to a faculty member is no emails. Two emails is one email. Just assume that they like, it doesn't always happen that they respond right away. Keep being mm -hmm. follow up, be resourceful, reach out, present yourself well and with confidence and 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 find your way if the path doesn't exist create it you know as best as you're able and that's not easy but existing as a woman of color in academia is not easy right yeah um what would be like a sample email how would you uh what what, what was the word that you use like how would you showcase yourself how would you so i use like a your... pretty basic like sandwich i call it a sandwich so mm -hmm. I do, you know, highs, yada, yada. I, I, you know, it's the, I hope you're having a great day. You know, I saw your work on the profile, whatever, no sé dónde. And I do a little <laughs> bit about who they are and why I'm reaching out to them in particular. I tell them about mm -hmm. how what I want to do or what I have done or am doing relates to what they do, right? That's the meat of my sandwich. And then I close it off with like, again, I think you're dope. I think you're amazing. Or I think your work is at least, um, I know you must be very busy, but I'd appreciate having a couple minutes to talk either via phone call, Zoom, or in person. I'm, I'm flexible, you know? So I use like, in my mind, that has always worked for me. They feel it personable right from the jump. Like, okay, they know who I am. And the second most important thing is like, why they need to know who I am. Like, why am I important? You know, why do, why do they need to know me? And then just close it off with some generic wrap up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So any other questions for any of us? Any last bit? I just want to say thank you to Patricia, Ariana. You guys are doing the work. Um, you are working hard, advocating for your students, being in your, being successful in your spaces, um, and, and finding ways to share resources and spread information for those that are navigating the choppy waters of academia as women of color, as people of color. Um, it's not easy. It rarely is a linear process or smooth sailing all the time, <laughs> but you guys are there. And uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for bringing me on board. Uh, for as far as Academic Mujeres goes, um, mm -hmm. I have an Instagram and a Facebook is at, what is the little, what is the little symbol called? Little at. Yeah, the at, at Academic <laughs> Mujeres. Same on Facebook. 
The website is www.academicmujeres.com. On there, I will be featuring more and more profiles of mujeres that are doing the work, academic mujeres, at the doctoral level, at the master's level, pretty soon at the bachelor's level. Every level is valued and seen. And it's interdisciplinary. So we have some, you know, RNs, we have some medical, we have some STEM, we have some social science, we have some uh, doctors of ed in there. So I want to really make it interdisciplinary and in, in an effort to increase representation at every level and in every discipline. I have a few podcasts up there. Um, some of the academic mujeres that we see around also have their side hustles where they sell stickers and promotional stuff to kind of get you pumped and help you feel confident. So I have links to their work on there and their their hustles on there to support that too. And lastly, I also have some funding opportunities that I hope to cycle out. Um, again, I'm pretty busy, but I, I do my best to do a, a search of funding opportunities at least once a month and upload the website. Every Friday on the Instagram, I have a hashtag funding Fridays and I try to share as many resources as are available at the time. This is for uh, grants, scholarships, or other funding opportunities, even maybe conferences that come up. So you can follow Academic Mujeres on Instagram on Fridays. You'll find, you'll find resources in the Instagram stories. And how can people either submit their profile or get in contact with you for um, any projects or collaborations? For sure, yeah. So uh, I, there is an inquiry form on the website that can be um, submitted. There's also, on Instagram really is the easiest way because I, I check the, the DMs there pretty frequently. <laughs> I am doing my best to, to roll out more and more profiles every week so that we can see just the beautiful effort that is happening across academia and in various different campuses. And um, the, the goal there too is for the women that submit their profiles that I profile on the, on the Instagram or the website, Facebook, is that other women will reach out to them. We'll see their story. We'll be like, oh my God, that's like same. You know, I'm from Sonora and I have this and I'm first gen too. And reaching out to that person, the community expands that way, you know? And um, so that's my goal is to, to help find, to help people see themselves in other people and in other aspects. Well, thank you so much. Your whole platform is doing so much and it's amazing that, you know, we're being able to touch base with you again after, you know, having that conversation with Dr. Lorena and it's like a full circle right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I wanna say one more thing, sorry, sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to say that to be on the lookout that we will be having an uh, sort of a web-based conference, like a mentorship conference in the early summer. We're thinking maybe end of May, early June, once everyone's sort of done with their spring semester, wherein uh, mentees will be able to collect to connect with a select few mentors and kind of do a Q&A with them, talk to them via Zoom, it'll be a video conference and um, for like a set time period and ask them some critical questions and um, try to get their direct feedback on their their academic progress, their process, their position. And the mentors have already been selected, but I won't say, cause I want you to tune in and wait. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that'll be happening. It'll be a, a web-based mentorship or femtorship conference in the early summer. 
I was about to ask. I was like, could you tell us who it is? Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay <great>. TBD, TBD. <laughs> or yeah. no, TBA. Yeah, TBA. Yeah. And if anything, um, we will be uh, working um, in different projects later on. And, and it's so mm-hmm. exciting to see, uh, hopefully using our podcast platform to also like record different conferences. Um, I would yes. invite other people to do the same thing, you know, like every single, mm-hmm. you know, conversation like this helps so many people because each one of us has like our own little key gems and tips that can be I so agree. helpful for different people. I agree. Yeah. Now we're going to do a POC business shout out. At Guarache's Fatima Gutierrez, a Latina estudiante and immigrant who sells handmade artisanal footwear and accessories, fair trade, slow fashion, and with purpose. Your purchase helps generate jobs for many Latin American families, from the producer of raw materials to the one who sells them, technicians, engineers, operators, and artisans. Also on Friday, February 28th and Saturday, February 29th, Chicana Code Switchers will be attending the Harvard Graduate School of Education's Alumni of Color Conference, which is a convening of alumni, students, practitioners, artists, and scholars, both from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and across the nation, in order to share best practices and cutting-edge research on strengthening the policies, practices, and competencies of diversity, equity, and inclusion that pertain to people of color in educational spaces. The theme of this year's conference is Hugsy 100 Years in the Making, Past, Present, and Future of Education for Communities of Color, coinciding with Hugsy's 100th anniversary. AOCC 2020 will offer a unique opportunity to unite past and present with the mission of inspiring and transforming the future of education. We hope to see many of you there, but if not, uh, please to be on the lookout for a future episode with a live audience um, and their advice about um, networking, overcoming challenges, and um, their advice about getting ahead. If you need any more information, please check out the AOCC 2020 website online and in the link that we'll provide in our description. And for closing, uh, for all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business, conference, and event shoutouts and listener letters. You also could uh, record a listener message on the Anchor app. We have the link directly where you can record a message and we can include in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at, at Chicana Code Switchers and at, on Twitter X Code Switchers. If you want to support this podcast and contribute to our funds, our uh, coffee runs, our graduate school funds, all the funds, uh, you can Venmo or cash us, cash app us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. We have monthly uh, posts and tips that we uh, post. Some of them are free and open to all, like you don't have to be a patron contributor to um, uh, access them. And thank you so much for tuning into this uh, episode. And until next time, thank you, Mara, so much. Thank you. Thank you.